Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to continue to study who Jesus is. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said to him, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, What is the question? Who do you say that I am? And that's what we're about. Who is he to you? Who is he to you? Who is he to you? Who is he to you in the middle of the night? Who is he to you in the middle of the storms? Who is he to you in whatever life brings across your path? Who is he to you? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And that's the next thing we've been looking at. We talked about up until this point, we've gone through each one of those verses and seen how, what the significance of them is, and we're now looking at the key, the answer, the answer that God gives, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you didn't figure that out, but my Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. What we've been talking about is that's the answer that God gives to the question. Jesus asked the question, and notice he asked the question first of all, about what the public opinion is, but then he also asked them personally, and these are men that have been walking with him and have lived with him. Who do you say that I am? You should have a greater understanding today of who he is to you than you did a year ago because you've walked with him a year longer. And every day we should grow more and more in our knowledge of who he is. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, my Father in heaven told you that answer. So what we see from that is that's the answer that God has to the question. Two things. You are the Christ, the anointed one, and you are the son of the living God. We talked about what he didn't say. He didn't say you're the savior. He didn't say you're the lamb of God. He didn't say you're the redeemer. You're the healer. You're the deliverer. He didn't say you're the soon coming king. He didn't say any of those things, even though all of them are true. We're not saying they're not true, but that's not the question that was asked. Because though would have been good answers if the question is, tell us what you do for us. Those are things he's done for us and continues to do for us. This answer is, who is his essence? Who is he? What is his essence? And that is the focus of our study for much of this year. Who is Jesus? Not what does Jesus do? Who is Jesus? Because that's the foundation of your relationship with him. Many Christians, unfortunately, have as the foundation of their relationship with Jesus what He does for them. And the problem with that is if you don't think He's doing anything for you, then your foundation gets shaky. If He doesn't do for you what you're expecting when He expects it, your foundation gets shaky. But if your foundation of your relationship with Him is based on who He is, who He is never changes. 
So that's what we're looking at this for. We'll also find out as we receive this revelation, it will begin to change us. And so we've looked at the first thing, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We spent several weeks on that, and we may go back still, I'm not sure yet, and and look at that again. But I really felt led to get into the second part of the answer, you are the Son of the living God. And there's three things that we see that that has a meaning to us for. There may be more, but to us, that's what we're looking at. First thing it tells us is how much He loves you. Second thing it tells us is when we see who it is that God gave It changes how we respond to Him. And the third thing is when we recognize that He is the Son of the living God, we understand that we can know who the Father is now by looking at the Son. But we're still in that first study. That this tells us how much God loves us. And we're spending time on this because this is still the greatest foundation that needs to be established in every one of our lives. And we've looked and we've seen that the beginning of this is in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We looked at the word so, because the word so changes that verse from being simply a statement of fact to being a measure of the degree to which God loves you. Without the word so, and it says, for God loved the world. And that's a simply cold fact. But when we talk about how much God loves you, how much God loves you. When that revelation begins to sink into you, how much God loves you, that changes you. The song that was popular years ago, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. Da, 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 da. And we'll stop there. <laughs> that is so desperately true. But the world doesn't have the love to give that the world needs. That love can only come from one greater. The love that satisfies, the love that changes, the love that fulfills can only come from someone greater than you. See, people come up and say, you know, God's pleased with what you're doing. That's nice, and I appreciate that. But only when I hear it from Him does it matter. Because only He knows whether I please Him or not. For God so loved the world. And then we looked in Ephesians chapter 2, and we saw that the foundation of your walk with God and our walk with one another, the foundation of it has to be the knowledge of how much He loves you. We went through Ephesians chapter 2 and we saw that God took us from being dead and made us alive together with Christ Jesus and seated, joined us to Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places. For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift from God and we are saved by grace unto good works. We looked at all that and then we went back and looked at verse 4 because verse 4 is the key. It tells you why God did it. Why did God save you? Why did God raise you up and join you to Christ Jesus? Why did God bring you from death and make you alive? Why did God do that? Why did He, why didn't he just say, okay, you don't have to go to hell? Pray the price, you don't have to go to hell. That's good. You get along down here as best you can. And when your life's over, you go to heaven and you don't have to go to hell. That would be wonderful if that's all it was about. And that's, what's, that's where so many Christians stop. 
They're grateful that they're not going to hell. They're grateful they're going to heaven. And believe me, so am I. But there's so much more. There's so much more. We don't have time this morning. At some point, we'll do a study of the tabernacle. I wrote a book on it. It's in the bookstore about the study of the tabernacle. It's not just about... In fact, the title of the book is The Tabernacle of Moses in the Wilderness or Why Study an Old Tent? And the whole purpose of the book is why do we study an old tent? Because there's a reason for it. It opens our understanding of the relationship that God has offered to us. And so, the, verse 4 tells us the reason God did all this is in order to satisfy I love the Amplified, the, one, the great and wonderful and intense love with which He loved you. That's why He did this. Because He has a love for you that has to be satisfied. The only way it can be satisfied is by having you. Right. Having you. Not the church, you. The church is made up of a bunch of yous that He wants to have. <laughs> it's you personally that He loves that much. And then we looked in 1 John that says that without, that, that we can't, the only way we can love is because He's first loved us. And then we went over to this Ephesians 3. And we were already in it, but we're going to read through it and then go on because we're talking about how to receive this love. Ephesians 3 is a prayer. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you. This is a prayer that Paul prayed for the saints in Ephesus. So it's our prayer for us too that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That, now in order for Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith, this is the first thing that must happen. That you being rooted and grounded in love. That's God's love for you. So we talked about that in order to grow and be healthy, we have to be rooted and grounded in the love that God has for us. I know it's the love that God has for us because the next verse says, and that we might come to know together with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. So His will, His desire for you, the next verse says, is so that you may be filled with all of the fullness of Him, of Christ. But in order to be filled with all of the fullness of Him, you have to be rooted in His love for you or else you won't receive all of Him. But it's not enough to be rooted in His love for you. He wants you then to come to a revelation of the extent of His love for you. And only then can He begin to truly dwell in you. And that's what we've been looking at. And last time we started to look at, all right, that's in the Bible, especially the New Testament, but it's true in the Old Testament too. Whenever God works with us or transacts something to us, there's two sides of it. There's the side where God gives. We looked last week, that's not enough. Then I have to receive. And we went over that. I'm not going to go back over that. So there are two steps to a transaction for God's blessing, for God's grace, for whatever God has for you, His salvation, for it to be received into your life and enjoyed in your life and prospered in your life. There's two things that have to happen. He has to give it. If He doesn't give it, you can receive all you want and nothing's going to happen. But He can give, and if you don't receive, it doesn't do anything for you or very little. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth so the gift of his son was given to the world 
not the church, the church didn't exist then, was given to the world, and then out of the world, everyone must make a choice whether they receive that gift, and those that receive it receive the eternal life that he talks about. Same principle. But that same principle works with everything God gives. And that's why faith is so important. Because that's why he says that we be strengthened in our inner man by, that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. So the key to receiving this gift is that we receive it by faith. We looked in James chapter 1. And we saw he talks about how you handle trials and tribulations. And then he talks about when you lack wisdom, you are to ask of God who gives to all men liberally. But there's a condition. You must ask in faith nothing doubting. So although he talked about wisdom to begin with, he goes on to talk about how you receive anything from God because he says if we doubt, then we are like the wind that blows the sea wherever it wants. We become a double-minded man and he says not, not that man think he will receive anything from God. And we talked last week, I showed you the example, that's not because God's holding it back. It's the doubt makes it impossible for us to receive and I gave you several examples of that last week. I'm not going to go back over it. So that God is not deciding today whether He's going to love you or not. He decided that before the foundation of the world. Before you were ever born, before you ever did anything good or bad, He already had given His love for you. And He acted on that because at the appropriate time, He sent His Son to die in your place before you were ever born, before you ever had a good thought, bad thought, did everything, anything right or wrong. He already had paid the price, which means He already loved you before you were born. That's why you can't do anything to make Him love you less because He knew everything you were going to do before He decided to love you. So He's not shocked this morning by what you did last night. I may be, but he's not. He may not be pleased with what you did last night, but he loves you. He wasn't taken by, taken by surprise, and he sent his son to die for you before last night ever came, because he loves you. But that love has to be received in order for you to enjoy it and to know it, and really to communicate it. Because there are many people trying to communicate God, something they haven't received yet. They're trying to pass on something they don't have in their hands yet. It's been given to them, but they haven't laid hold of it yet. So we see in Ephesians 3 here, in these verses, that we are to do this by faith. We see in James chapter 1, we saw last week, that we are to receive it by faith, nothing doubting. And now we, then we went to Romans chapter 4, and you can go there now. Romans chapter 4, and we were in the middle of this discussion, because this talks about what faith is and how you operate in faith. The background we gave to this particular story is from the Old Testament, God gave a promise to Abraham, his name was Abram at the time, that he would 
be the father of many nations. At that time, Abraham was 75 years old, and he was, he was past the age of childbearing or childgiving, and his wife was past the, 65. She was past the age of childbearing, but even if she weren't, wasn't, she was barren. She'd never been able to have a child. So there are three strikes against them. And God comes and doesn't say you're going to have a child. God says, you're going to be the father of many nations. God thinks big. But see, when you can do anything, you can think big. Abraham struggled with that. We don't have time to go back and look all about that, but it's interesting. Go back and read the story and starting in, in Genesis 15 and, and up through 22. And Abraham struggles with this. At one point he laughed at God. Sarah laughed at God. The biggest thing is they tried to help God out because it wasn't, didn't seem to be working. So they went and helped God out and, and he had a son through her servant Hagar. They presented Ishmael to God and said, yep, see, we did what, you know, we, we fulfilled your will. And God says, no, that's not what I said. The only way it's going to happen is you're going to believe my promise. That's it. And now Paul is using that example to teach this principle of faith, of how you receive, in his, this case, he's talking about how you receive the righteousness that God gives to you through faith in Christ. Because the beginning of this chapter, he says, it's either by works, which is something you earn, or it's by grace received by faith. There's no mixture of the two. You cannot mix the two. They're mutually exclusive. If you're doing one, you cannot do the other. And so Paul now teaches, starting in verse 17, this principle of faith and the elements of faith in here. And we got into this last week, so we'll go through the rest of it and then go into something else. Verse verse, uh, 17. As it is written... A father of many nations have I made you. So it started with the promise. Because what faith is, simply boiled down to its essence, is taking God at His word. Faith is simply taking God at His word. So you've got to start with His word. What's the promise? What is the promise God made that I'm believing? Well, in our case, we've been looking at the promise. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We looked at Ephesians 2, 4, which says, because of in order to satisfy the love that He has for you. John 3, 1 John 3, verse 1, says, that for, for the, behold, that means look, see, what kind of love, what un, the word kind there means, what unusual kind, what different kind of, unique kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God, children of God. So there's many promises, and I'm going to, I, I, I'll tell you at the end, I put, I put some of them together for you and make them, made them available to you. I'll tell you later at the end how to do that. So there are plenty, so we have the promises, but you've got to know what you're looking You're looking at the promise, not how you feel. You're looking at the promise. As it is written, a father of many nations, have I made you. We talked last time. That's past tense. This is the way God works. God decides something, God declares something, and from God's side, it's done. So God's not saying, I will make you in the future. As for me, as far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many nations. That's the promise. In the sight or in the presence of him whom he believed, God. Then the next thing we looked at, is this God able to fulfill this promise? 
See, some people make promises to you they can't fulfill. And the stock market's been reacting to some of those. <laughs> so it's one thing to make a promise. It's another thing then you evaluate. Can I trust this person that's made the promise? There's two things you need to know about that. First of all, you've got to know their character. Are they trustworthy? Will they do what they said they were going to do? Now, this is a little side trip here. It's not in my notes. But mark this scripture down, Numbers 23, 19. Because to decide whether you can trust God's promise, there's two things you've got to know. It's about true of anybody. Can I trust their character? Is their word good? Will they keep their word? Numbers 23, 19 says this about God. It says, God is not a man. So I, I know that. Well, let me, let's finish the verse. God is not a man that he should lie. What that means is you cannot decide whether you can trust God's word based on your experience with people. You may have been raised in a family where you couldn't trust anybody's word. It has nothing to do with God. You may have had people lie to you your whole life. You may be a liar. None of that has anything to do with whether you can trust God's Word. Why? Because you can't look at people to decide whether you can trust whether God keeps His Word. Why? Because God's not a man. I mean, for some of you, that needs to hit you. Because it's, it's normal, it's understandable that we form our image of God through our understanding of people. God made it that way. God designed us so that we would learn very naturally and seamlessly to know who God is, love God, and trust God because of our parents that we knew. But unfortunately, that's going to skew <laughs> in many families, and it's worse today than it's ever been before, and that's really what the enemy is about, because if he can destroy the family, then there's no context in which we can come to have some understanding as a child of what God is like, unless we get it from somewhere else. So God's not a man that he should lie. So that tells us, nor the son of man, which basically means the same thing, that he should repent, that means change his mind. So it's one thing somebody may say something sincerely mean, I'm going to do this. You're moving on Saturday, I'll be there and help you move. And fully intend it, and then Saturday morning get up and, yeah, I don't feel so good today. Yeah, well, I meant it at the time, I was sincere, but I I don't feel like it today, so I just think I'll sleep today. I changed my mind. God doesn't change his mind. And he doesn't lie. Has he not said it? It goes on to say, and shall he not bring it to pass? I'll tell you why. The Bible says in several places, God cannot lie. Not that he doesn't. He cannot lie. And I don't have time to go into this whole analysis. But in Genesis, in, in, in John 17, I think it's around verse 4, it says, sanctify them in thy word, thy word is truth. That does not say God tells the truth. That says whatever God says, that's what truth is. Truth is whatever comes from the mouth of God. So if he tries to lie, it's now truth. 
Because truth is defined as whatever he says. Truth is not something that hangs out there by which we measure God's word against it. That's what we do with all, each other, and that's normal. That's right. But truth is whatever truth is what God says. So whatever God says, that's what truth is. So if he tries to lie, he can't because that's now truth. My mother used to say, if I say to you, night is day and day is night, you better believe it. But it didn't change night into day. <clears throat> she meant it too, but she, didn't change. she couldn't change day to night. But God can. <clears throat> so the first thing we've got to know about trusting someone's word is can we trust their character? Can we trust the person that's behind it? The second basic thing we need to know before we can totally trust someone's word is okay they may have the best of intentions they may have the greatest integrity but do they have the means the ability to perform what they promised I could stand in front of you today and say I'm going to give each one of you a million dollars today and I could be sincere and really want to do that but I don't want to disappoint you too hard I'm not yet able to do that. <laughs> Love to, but I'm not yet able to do that. So the promise, although my character may be good, the promise cannot be fulfilled because I don't have the ability to do it. Maybe when you make the promise, you have the ability, but by the time it comes to perform it, you no longer have it. And that's what Paul talks about here. As it is written... A father of many nations have I made you. That's the promise. In the sight, in the vision, in the eye of him with whom we have to do, who calls things in, who, 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 who raises the dead. Now we're talking about the ability that God has to perform his promise. Who can raise the dead. We talked about that last week. You and I can't do that. Medical science... Once someone's dead for a while, they may be able to use the paddles and bring them back for a few minutes. But there comes a point in time when they stinketh, as the Bible says, when it's too late. But it's never too late for God. Just ask Jairus. Because when his servant came and said, don't bother the master any longer, it's too late, it's over, Jesus grabs him, I believe. It doesn't say that in Scripture, but I can just picture him grabbing him by his robe and pulling him to him and says, fear not only believe. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't care that she's dead. That doesn't stop me from healing her, except you need to continue to believe. Don't doubt. Believe and do not doubt. And I can do the impossible. But it goes on, it's better. Because not only can he take something that was dead and make it alive, but it says he can call things into existence that never existed before, and that's the one that's made a promise to you. Now let's go back. What's the promise? For God so loved you. What's the promise? Behold what manner of Love, the Father has bestowed upon you that you should be called a child, a son of God. And has, does not even appear what we shall be, but we know this, when we see him, 
we shall be like him. God's promise is he loves you. And the way we receive that promise, the way we receive that love is by first of all taking the promise and simply believing it by faith. And that's what we're going to continue to talk about today. Because it goes on to say, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become. We talked last time about the order is you believe and then you become. You believe, God promises, second step, I believe, and don't doubt. Third step, now I become what he promised. Why? Because when I believe it, I receive the promise, and now it becomes a reality in my life. But it's got to become a reality by faith before it becomes a reality by my experience. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen or experienced. So the order is God promises, now it's my turn. I believe that promise. And let me tell you, that's not an emotion, it's an act of your will. It's a choice you make to believe His Word. And the feelings will follow, but it's a choice you make. Otherwise, God wouldn't hold us responsible for believing in Christ. Because if the way we're saved is by faith in Christ, and if that was something just happens, you have no control over, you just happen to be in the right place at the right time, the wind blows the right direction and blows it in off the sea, you know, you find a scrap of whatever it is, you know, or some emotion that you have, if that's what it was based on, then that wouldn't be very fair, would it? But God is righteous and He's fair. So He says, this is what it takes to enter into heaven, you have to believe that Christ died for your sins. And the only way that can be fair is if I have control over whether I believe it or not. So it's an act of my will. It's a choice I make. And see, the reason so many people struggle is they're, not, they're looking for the wrong thing. They're looking for an emotion. They're looking for a mood. They're looking for an experience. The Bible doesn't talk about those. People have those in the Bible and people have those here. But what it says is it is an act of your will. It is a choice to believe what he said because he's trustworthy. It pleases God. That's why Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please him. It pleases God when you take him at his word because what you're saying is, I trust you. Imagine if your children kept coming to say, Dad, I, you know, I don't know that I really trust you. And you've provided everything they've needed. You've provided life for them. You've sustained them. You know, you've taught them, corrected them, clothed them, fed them. And they look at you and say, I don't know that I can trust your word, Dad, unless you've given them reason not to. And you've never lied to them. You've never failed them. And they look at you and say, I don't know that I can believe you. I've got to see it, Dad. That wouldn't bless you, would it? But it pleases him. When, when you don't see anything and you don't feel anything and you say, I trust you anyway. Job said a lot of wrong things. But one of the things he said was down in his heart. This is why he wouldn't curse God and die. He says, though you slay me, God wouldn't, but though you slay me, yet I will trust you. That was an act of his will. 
So we receive this gift of love by faith, by deciding we're going to receive it. By deciding we're going to receive it. He believed in order that he might become according to that which was spoken, so shall your descendants be. It goes on and says, verse 19, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. Some translations say he considered his own body, but it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. What his body told him didn't matter. Now, his body is 75 years old. In fact, before this is over, it gets to be 99 years old. Doesn't look any more hopeful when he's 99 than it did when he was 75. And I'm sure Sarah didn't look any more hopeful either. But he didn't consider what his senses told him. That's what this is saying. He didn't pay attention because your senses are telling you things. Your senses are saying, it's never going to happen. Especially, for instance, suppose you're believing God for a healing of your body. And that's really a challenge when your body's hurting. Because it hurts telling you something. There's still something wrong. I'm still sick. The disease is still there. When the lump, you can still feel the lump. You know, it's like the lump's telling you it isn't working. The lump's telling you something. It's not working. You have to choose, it's an act of your will, what you're going to pay attention to. I know my body's telling me this. But God's Word says something contrary. So I'm going to choose to believe what God says, not what my body's telling me. By doing that, you're you're allowing the power of God's Word to work in your body. But when you choose to believe what your body says against what God says, you're saying no to God's Word working in your body, and you're giving authority to your body to rule as to what the truth is for your body. You follow that? But the same is true with everything by faith. So you come to church on a Wednesday night and have a glorious experience and you hear the Word of God taught and the Spirit of God ministers to you and you just go out of there feeling so loved. And Fourteen people came up to you and said you're the most wonderful thing that's ever come into their life and you just kind of hardly touch the pavement as you walk out the back door. Oh, God, so wonderful. He loves me so much. Oh, God loves me. I know God loves me. Oh, he's so wonderful. I just love God so much. He's just wonderful. And you get in your car, you know, and you go home. And you go to bed, and you get up in the morning. Where'd he go? What did I do? And you can't feel him. It's like the rapture came and you're left behind. How does how you feel Thursday morning change what God said about you? It doesn't. But here's where we get into the trap. We start believing God loves me 
because I feel His love. It just feels so wonderful. And it's wonderful to enjoy it. But don't base your confidence of God's love for you on how you feel when you feel good. Because what are you going to do when you don't feel that the next morning or the next five minutes? I've counseled people that come to me and says, Pastor, I've been standing and believing God for, 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 the, for the, this disease to disappear. And I went to the doctor and the, and the, and the, the white blood cell count is, is up or is down and, or, or, or the thing is shrinking. And Oh, fuck, Lord, Pastor, it's such good news. I, I said, let's rejoice in it, but stop. All right? Stop. Don't move your confidence now off of God's promise onto the doctor's report. Know what your trust is in at all times. We're talking about receiving by faith, and especially in this case, His love for you. The breadth and length and height and depth and to know by experience that word means the love of Christ for you. It's received by faith, which means you take his promise and you establish. That settles it. I will never again doubt God's love for me because his word says so. His word says so. All right, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, quickly. I'm just going to look at one scripture there, but I want you to see it. Very short verse. For we walk, that means we live, we conduct our life by faith and not by sight, that means your feelings, your emotions, your senses. We live our life, we walk with God by faith. By faith in what God says about the situation. By faith in what God says about me. By faith in what God's Word says, not by what things look like to my eyes, my ears, my feelings, my senses, my emotions. We don't walk by our emotions. Romans chapter 10. All right. So we do this by faith. Where do I get this faith from? Do I pray for faith? Now the Bible tells us how you receive faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Now the faith he's talking about in here is the faith to receive your salvation. But the principle is the same. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith doesn't come by asking God for it. Now, there is a gift of faith that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
But that's not the faith by which you're saved. That's not the faith by which you receive things. That is a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. If you look at the whole context in there, it's for the purpose of the Spirit of God manifesting Himself in a setting, especially in a service setting or some collective setting where He manifests Himself. And that gift of faith is where the person that that's dropped into, and it's temporary, it comes and goes and says, as the Spirit wills. So it's not the same faith. The Spirit of God will drop in you a faith by which you know something. You know what God's going to do with such a certainty that you would step out on the water. I'll give you just a quick sample of that. One of the great evangelists of the 20th century was Smith Wigglesworth. Plummer got saved, about 55 years of age, went into the ministry. There are three, in his writings, there are three stories of him raising somebody from the dead. There are other accounts that do a lot more. In one of these accounts I've read, he was with a pastor, uh, visiting a pastor, and the pastor got a call to go to someone's house because they're, they're, uh, somebody in the family, grandfather or something, had, had just died. And so um, he's just going along with the pastor. The pastor's going to make a typical pastoral visit and bring comfort and reassurance. And so Wigglesworth just walks in the door with him, and they're over talking to the family, and over behind the French doors in the dining room laid on the table is Uncle Fred or whoever it was. And while they're in there ministering, talking, something goes off in Wigglesworth, and he starts heading for the French doors. Well, you don't pay much attention to it, except that he opens the doors and goes in there and leans over the body and commands him to come to life. Now, he had a booming voice, so the whole place shook. Fred didn't come to life. I'm not recommending you do this. This is how the gift of faith works. He put his hands under Fred's arms, Pitt, I don't know if his name was Fred, picked him up off the table and held him out there against the wall and said, I said in the name of Jesus, walk. And he let go and stepped back and Fred fell to the floor. Now you got everybody's attention now. They're horrified. (laughs) This is why you don't try this. My point is, there was a boldness in him that came because he described it afterwards. He said, in the first instance, my faith ran out. But there was like a faith dropped down out of heaven into me, and I knew what God was going to do. So he picked him back up again and held him again and said, I said, walk and let go. And he fell down again. By this time, I'm looking for the exits. (laughs) I never would have put myself... But he had this knowing inside. He would not be denied. It was not his natural personality. It was a gift of faith. And that's what I'm talking about here. He picked him up the third or fourth time and slammed him against the wall. He said, I said in the name of Jesus, walk and slam. And he hit the wall and came up and stood up and his eyes opened up. but God can raise the dead. But here it was a faith that was not a result of Wigglesworth meditating on the Word of God and speaking the Word of God. It was a gift that was dropped in him at that moment for that purpose to carry out that manifestation that God was there. That's the gift of faith. 
But every other, the normal faith that you and I can have control over, comes by hearing. That means listening to, reading, hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Go with me now to James chapter, excuse me, Joshua chapter 1. I'll give you this verse. We're talking about now, if we receive the revelation of God's love for us, like every other thing God gives us by faith, where do I get that faith? How do I increase that faith? So it comes by hearing. Your faith is building in you. Some of your your level of faith now is higher than it was when the service began. Why? Because you've heard God's word. And so there's more faith in your heart right now because you've heard the word. But hearing it's not enough. Verse, well, we'll look at verse, um, verse 8. For this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now he's talking here about success to Joshua as a leader who just taken over for Moses. And he was telling, my will is for you to have good success, but the way you're going to have good success and make your way prosper is by doing what my word says to do. But the way you're going to have the strength and the boldness to do what my word says to do is by not letting it depart from your mouth or your mind. So what this verse is teaching us is one of the ways to increase your faith. One of the best ways to hear the word of God is out of your own mouth. Because meditate literally means to mutter, M-U-T-T-E-R, to roll over and over in your mind. See, what we'll do is we'll read. So you read the Word of God for a number of different reasons. We can read it just for an inspiration in our devotion to draw us closer to God today, to reconnect with Him in the morning or whatever. You read the Word of God to develop faith. You can read the Word of God to, for, for greater wisdom and understanding. But you can also read the Word of God to simply strengthen your faith. And as you read that Word, one of the best ways to do it is to read it out loud. I very rarely just sit down in purpose to, med- to, to memorize Scripture. Most of the Scripture I know by heart is because I've said it over and 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 over again so that I'll wake up and then I'll wake up in the middle of the night last night. A Scripture was coming right out of my mouth. Not loud enough to wake up Anita, but was coming, I was running around in my mind because I woke up in the middle of the night because I've run it around and 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 around in my mind. Now, I want to give you some very simple principles. I've printed them out, and you'll, they're going to be on each of the, uh, each of the um, uh, uh, welcome center boards out there the, on how to meditate. little thing looks like this. It's got six, six steps in there. And I may have to go through more of them next week. But let me tell you, first of all, you're all experts at it. You already know how to meditate. You just don't call it that. You call it worry. 
So if you can worry, you already know how to meditate. The only thing you've got to change is what you're worrying about. So let me quickly go down these things. They're available at, out on the, on the two uh, information booths. The first thing is when you look at a scripture, make sure you know exactly what it says. If you overlook a little word like not, especially when you're reading the Ten Commandments, <laughs> you can get in a lot of trouble. So make sure you know exactly what it says. That means you've got to go back and read it again carefully to make sure your mind understands it. First thing is if your mind doesn't understand it, it won't get down inside of you. And while you're looking at it again and reading it again to make sure you understand it, guess what you're doing? You're meditating on it. Second thing, think about whether what you read made sense. Because if you don't understand what it's saying, you may be reading it correctly, but if you don't understand what it's saying, then it's not going to get in either. So go back through and say, does this make sense? Does this fit in with the verse before and the verse after? Because guess what? While you're thinking about whether it makes sense, guess what you're doing? You're meditating. Number three, look at it from different points of view. One of the best ways to do that is to emphasize each word. I did a teaching once on the first verse of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, just that phrase, the Lord. Not the Lord, the Lord. What does that mean? There's only one. And I thought about that one. The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean to me? There's the Lord that's my shepherd. That's where most of this teaching comes from. I just do this. I'll let you know my secret. (laughs) And guess what? Guess what's happening while you're doing that? You're meditating. All right, the next one. Visualize it. That just means you imagine what would it mean to me if this really were true? What would it be like? How would I feel differently? How would I walk differently? How would I talk differently if God really loved me that much? Isn't that what you do when you worry? What's it going to mean? The market dropped 600 points. How is that going to affect me? That's why there's such fear out there. People, faith comes by hearing. Fear comes by hearing. Fear and faith are the same thing. It's just based on two different things. I mean, you look at the news... First of all, you understand there's not enough news for 24 hours of reporting. There just isn't that much news that anybody's interested in that they can report 24 hours a day something new. So that means they have to say it over and over and over again. And now not only are they saying it by somebody on the screen, but that these got these banners going across the bottom. So you're hearing it and you're reading it. Now some of them have two banners going across the bottom. Some things are on the sides. I mean, you're getting inundated with, and you watch that for an hour or so, and you come away feeling, oh my good, no wonder. Fear came by hearing. These are all things you do when you, fear, when you worry. The next thing is similar to the last one is to project it. What will it mean to me in the future if this is really true? These are all parts of what we do when we worry. I've also prepared for you out there, I'm making it really easy for you, scriptures. And we'll get these posted on Facebook and probably on the, internet, on the website too. These are scriptures that you can take and meditate on God's love for you. I'd encourage you to pick one or two. 
Because at least this is what works best for me. If I go through 20 scriptures, it's better for me if I take one or two and just keep going through. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. It only really takes one. Because the Spirit of God's working in you. Remember, we've studied this before. He searches the heart of God to reveal to you that which God has prepared for those who love Him that we don't see yet and don't hear yet and don't yet understand. He's searching. So he, he, the only thing He's waiting on is you. To give Him some fuel, to give Him some ammunition, to give Him something He can use to reveal it to you. And the vehicle that God's chosen is His Word. That Word... The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 10, it says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh. They're not of our mind. But they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. Unbelief of whether we can trust God or God loves us is a stronghold. And what pulls it down, what breaks it apart, God has provided a weapon to destroy it, and that weapon is His word. Books about other people are wonderful and they're great. They'll help you. You may be a little different insight, but the anointing God has put upon his word. It's not when you hear or read what Brother Doodad says about how much God loves you. It's when you read from God's own letter to you how much he loves you. And as you take one or more of these scriptures and just begin to go through them the way I've just suggested on those ways. Just walk through them one, letter to, one word at a time. That's how I got the word so. For God so loved. Because we read over that too quickly. For God so loved. What's that word so add to this? Tells me. He's telling me how much. And as you do that, what you'll find is the Spirit of God is going to begin to paint pictures inside of you. Revelation. Thou art the Christ. God's gift to you. The Son of the living God. That's how much He loves you. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. As we've looked at Your Word today and we've seen that not only have You made Your promise, not only have You shown us and demonstrated Your love, but you provided the means by which we may receive that love down in our hearts, that it may have, we may have that revelation that Peter had. We may have that revelation that others have, so many others have had, that we might answer the cry of your heart, which is that we might know the breadth and length and height and depth, and that we might know the love of Christ that's been given, the love of God that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for each one here this morning that as they take the Word of God and they begin to do what they've heard today, that the Spirit of the living God alive within them will quicken to them exactly what they need to see and help them to hear exactly what they need to hear. Our confidence is in you this morning, Father, not in ourselves. You have ordained your Word for this purpose. And you have placed your spirit in us for this purpose. And now we put a demand, a call by faith 
upon your spirit and upon your word to do in us what you have called them to do. And we thank you in advance in Jesus' name.